This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network. And I'm here with my uh, colleague Tony Prescott and with our guest, the speaker of our summer school, uh, John Kaas. Uh, the great anatomist with whom we already did a podcast, I think that was two years ago, if I'm correct, hmm? um, where we focused at that time very much on, on the evolution of the brain. Uh, in your talk today, um, I mean, two years ago your talk was so fantastic, we definitely want you to come back. You expanded much more on the work you actually started to, to do about two years ago on the organization of the motor system. Right? So... Um, what, what brought you to, to looking, looking at motor function in, in more detail? What got you to that point? Uh, actually, it was on a visit to give a talk at, at Princeton, and uh, an investigator there had an electrode in motor cortex, and he stimulated for a half a second, and the animal, every time he did that, and there was a macaque monkey looking around, completely bored, and whenever he did that, they, monkey put its hand to its mouth, and I thought this was the most fantastic thing ever. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, i got to try this when I get home. And we simplified, because it takes a long time to put a chamber on a monkey and do everything, so we had an anesthetized prosimian primate, a galago, and we put electrodes down in motor cortex and premotor cortex and posterior parietal cortex, and we got movements with the long-term stimulation, half a second of electrical pulses in all these places. And we can see that they were related to one another, and we started to get a plan. Mm -hmm. So now, <coughs> why did you pick the Galago for, for that? The reason wasn't very deep. We had a, a colony of about 50 of them, and they were right there. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to order any animals or do anything like that. And actually, I thought it would never work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not a macaque monkey. It's anesthetized. That's enough. And it won't work. But when it worked, then I saw, oh, it must be what's... And they didn't know the complete story for macaque monkeys yet. Mm -hmm. uh, Graziano was the investigator, and he was just looking at motor cortex and a little bit in premotor cortex. And actually, he gave up this line of research due to lack of funding. Mm -hmm. and, and we had funding problems initially as well. And then it started to emerge. We decided we can do, we, we did next macaque monkeys, and we did a very limited study on macaques because it was inexpensive and hard to do. Uh, and then we switched back to New World monkeys, and we did two different species of New World monkeys, and we got such similar resu results from prosimian galagos New World monkeys and our limited studies in macaque that I thought these are this is something that's going to be true for all primates mm -hmm. from this. Okay, because what you found seemed to, in some sense, contradict, if you want, our standard interpretation of how how brain and motor systems are organized, in the sense that often there's this view of a very hierarchical kind of structure where things all are converging onto, let's say. A motor area like M1, and then from there action is executed, right? And also, 
in the standard interpretation, you know, well, then the encoding of a motor command at level is fairly primitive. Right? But you, actually, what you found was, was rather different. So how, how would you describe the functional consequence of, of these results? So we would agree on one part of that, and that's the part that it is fairly hierarchical, because if you cool any part of motor cortex that causes the movement when you stimulate, you can't get the movement anymore from stimulating premotor or posteroparietal cortex. So it depends on that cortex being intact for the stimulation to work. So it's our view is, is that the posterior parietal cortex is activating at the same time motor and premotor cortex, and premotor cortex is activating at the same time when you're simulating posterior parietal, for example, motor cortex. So it's a series with jumps ahead in the sense it's not completely serial, it's also uh, jumps ahead to motor cortex directly from posterior parietal cortex, and that's pretty common in systems. But, but wait, <laughs> would this mean that you would get this result anywhere where you would stimulate in cortex, or it's more re to restricted to restricted areas where you would see this effect. So it's a small area that we would get hand coming to mouth, and it, but it's a small region in posterior parietal cortex. It's a small region in premotor cortex, and it's a small region in motor cortex. Uh, a defensive movement protecting the head from a blow would be in all three areas. Uh, Reaching would be in all three areas. Uh, eye movements would be in all three, except eye movements are hard to get actually from motor cortex to get from the frontal eye field. But you get this posterior parietal cortex going to premotor cortex to motor cortex for all these different things. They all involve small regions that we think are in competition with one another locally within the overall region posterior parietal cortex, premotor cortex, or motor cortex. Mm -hmm. So you found these uh, <laughs> results in monkeys, yes. and uh, you said in your lecture that there was a difference here from uh, uh, non-primate mammals, and something that it seems to have changed in evolution, in the evolution so, of primates. Two mm -hmm. things, yeah, you can say. One is, is that posterior parietal cortex in tree shoes, or mice, or squirrels, or rabbits, a lot of those kind of animals, posterior parietal cortex, if we try to define it in the same way, is a small part of the brain. It's a narrow strip of cortex. There's not much difference, uh, distance between primary visual cortex and primary sensory cortex in those animals. Pretty close together. There's not much room there. But in primates, it's a, a big expansive region, and it's even more so in a human brain or than it would be in a Galago brain. It's a large region. We also have evidence from other people's studies that it's a part of the human brain that expands the most in development. So we think it expands in evolution, in primate evolution, and, in, and it's late developing in, in the formation of the brain. Part of this cortex, it, is non-responsive to electrical stimulation. You stimulate there for half a second at any level of current, you get nothing. That's the most posterior part of posterior parietal cortex. Then you get into the movement part. The part that isn't, doesn't initiate movements actually projects to the part that does. So it's a feed-in of higher order visual information, basically. A lot of these areas also get direct visual input from identified visual areas. 
So you have areas, yes, I can say this is V3 or this is the M or some identified, and it's projecting to areas that cause movement. But most of their visual input is from a higher level that goes in, goes in there. It's indirect. So it's already fairly analyzed visual information. There's a lot of somatosensory information, a lot less somatosensory information for reaching, and a lot more for grasping and manipulation. And that makes sense. What kind of information do you need to, to uh, initiate this behavior? So that means... And guide it. What you're identifying is, let's say, a subsystem that could control, if you want, goal-oriented behavior. Mm -hmm. Would you call it that? Yeah. We, it's not reflexes, right. really, right? Yeah, the, the we behavior. call that subsystems, yes. And would well, it be a goal-oriented behavior? or more yeah, sensory-guided, would it be? It, it, these are different possible goal-oriented movements. Mm -hmm. And we think that they're basic to primate behavior, or a lot of animals' behavior. We think a lot of, uh, say... Uh, rodents would, don't need all these steps. They do have motor cortex and premotor cortex. And a lot of this behavior might be in a modular form or a, or a domain form in motor cortex and even in premotor cortex. There's some evidence already for this, but it's they don't have the full repertoire. Mm -hmm. But uh, and a lot of these behaviors would be just uh, controlled subcortically and and. and Subcortical centers will contribute in primates as well. For example, you might get protective reflexes by electrically stimulating the superior colliculus because you have visual information mm -hmm. coming in and you have access to motor movements that, that would not just be eyes but moving of arms and, and head to avoid a blow. So subcortical areas could be involved. But now I, it looks to us like we're getting more cortical control over basic behaviors that all animals need. They need, if they're, to various extents, animals might reach for food or they might use their face and reach for food. But primates are going to reach with their hand for food a lot. Reach for things and pick them up and bring them to their mouth or manipulate them or do something like that. So that's more developed in primates. But we think that now three stages are well developed in all primates. But the posterior parietal stage is probably more developed and more expansive in humans by far than it would be in prosimian primates. And it's more in a macaque monkey by far. And, and I would say it's expanded out so that it has more satellite information coming in. The cortex right around the domain where you get the movement is also involved. And we know it's involved uh, for two reasons. Say you have a grasp area where you stimulate and you get grasping movements, or you might say manipulation of something. If you go just outside that region where you're getting the grasp, you won't get grasped by electrically stimulating anymore, but if you record from the neurons, they're, they're active during grasp. So they might be, and they are interconnected directly with the grass domain, so they're involved in the the grass behavior as well. So it's that extra cortex that's involved in it, it occupies, we think, more of the more of the brain in a macaque monkey than in the Galago. It gives more options, more ways of modifying that behavior through, uh, we think, learning. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another two aspects <coughs> to this. I mean, there are many aspects. Mm -hmm. Two that, that I would like to to ask you about. 
So, so let's look at this 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 region, right? So we have, let's say now, um, a subset of brain areas. So on the one hand, we have this posterior parietal area with M1, and then we have a prefrontal mm -hmm. area. Um, okay, we might want to draw borders around that, but maybe we can we can have you on that later. But these are sort of like now three interconnected stages of the control of yeah. of behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. So the, the, this posterior parietal area is more, let's say, perceptual. Uh, would you would you say purely yeah. visual or is it multimodal, like including auditory? Multimodal, but depending on the behavior, a behavior that doesn't need much somatosensory and probably doesn't need auditory at all, which would be reaching to a target. The target is identified by visual information. Mm -hmm. So reaching to a target is going to be almost exclusively guided right. by visual information. Mm -hmm. Right. Manipulation of something will have a lot of tactile information and proprioceptive information added mm -hmm. to that. Still right. visual. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, then we have in the in the so this is the let's say if you want the sensory component, perceptual yeah. component, like you said earlier, it's fairly high level. It's not really at the level of the signals coming from a retina. Oh. It's really a process signals a percept we're dealing mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. you know? like an object. And then we would have this prefrontal area, which would supposedly be more executive, uh, decision-oriented, mm. I, I would presume. And then we'd have the motor area, which is then more with, let's say, fine-tuning or programming the, the yeah. action itself. Yeah. Would that be a decomposition you would agree with? Yes, or? yes. And I would add, besides fine-tuning to motor cortex, the connection with premotor areas that we haven't talked about, which would be the supplementary motor area, the pre-supplementary area, and three cingulate motor areas. And some of these will have to do with uh, uh, reward expectancies. Some of these will be with have to do with area error correction, like that was a wrong, wrong movement, and some general motivation, mm -hmm. levels of motivation. So that all impinges on primary motor cortex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would mean there would then be a fourth zone that you haven't really identified yet, dealing more with valuation. That's input that comes into the motor cortex, and that's the, you know, the last step at the cortical mm -hmm. processing that you're sending out. You've already sent out some subcortical information from premotor cortex, even from posterior parietal cortex, mm -hmm. but the critical output is from motor cortex. Mm -hmm. You take that away, these other areas, at least if you take it away immediately, like in cooling or immediately after a lesion, the other areas are not, now don't function. They don't give movements anymore. We haven't looked at what a long-term consequences of a lesion might be. Mm -hmm. Because my guess is you do a lesion, you don't get the movement from the other areas. I would bet in a month's time you would, maybe less, mm -hmm. maybe in two weeks, three weeks, mm -hmm. you would because there's a lot of plasticity and you can take over functions and reinforce connections that were not strong enough before but become strong enough mm -hmm. to elicit the behaviors. Right. But that'll be another whole chapter. The, plaster, mm -hmm. the plasticity and the ability to take over and make up for lesions will be another whole chapter in, mm -hmm. in this kind of research. Right. Not started yet. But, but now the consequence of this, <laughs> two issues. Right? On the one hand, we can pose the question, okay, how does it really then uh, sit with uh, standard interpretations of motor control, mm. right? And on the other hand, we can also ask me how how do does this three-layered control system 
of behavior relate to the subcortical control of action. Mm -hmm. right? So on the one hand, if you look at, at more common ideas of motor control, the granularity is really very different. Right? So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, of the standard idea of, of M1 being uh, or encoding action along population vectors where mm -hmm. every neuron would encode very discrete movement directions and amplitudes. And then if you would sample across large populations, then the, the common response would give you a direction of movement. But in, you are, this is a much lower granularity mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. organization than the one you're describing. So how, do you see this then as a conflict, or can these two views be made compatible? I, I don't see it as a conflict, and I think it will be our job to try to fit them together. Mm -hmm. But it's not fitting together just yet. Uh, if you electrically stimulate and you get a particular movement by reaching and you start stimulating around and moving the electrode, you eventually, in a short few millimeters or less, move out of that territory into another territory where you get another movement. Or you might move out where you get no movement, and then you move a little further and you start mm -hmm. getting another movement. Yeah, because uh, this is also the model you propose, but, yeah, right? That's the model. But mm -hmm. the movement, may, as you move the electrode, isn't exactly the same. So it may be that Different, you're getting somewhat different sets of neurons activated. Uh, when you look at the connection pattern, say in posterior parietal cortex, because we have that, posterior parietal cortex, one region will connect widely to all other modules or, or domains that we're, I've been talking about. If you turn this around now and optically image while you're doing that, you get a totally different picture. Optical imaging is where you would activate neurons high enough to go over a threshold. So it's not whether there's any activation, it's whether you change the ongoing activity to a higher level. And there you see a much different picture. You'll see around the electrode stimulation, neurons are activated at a higher level over a very short distance. And then you'll see patches around that domain that are activated and more distantly you see nothing, although the connections are there. Mm -hmm. So our interpretation of that is, is that the connections are largely connecting inhibitory neurons, and those inhibitory neurons are down-regulating activity. Mm -hmm. If you add a negative image, like you can have an F fMRI, but not so easily in optical imaging, because you're going over a, a threshold you set. If you look at functional imaging, I would predict in there that you would get a down regulation of less activity than if you're doing nothing in those regions. Yeah. So you're saying, this is also how you showed it, right, that actually there's, there's a very clean organization yeah. of these behavioral yeah. right. zones, if you want, yeah. and your idea would be that they are tightly excitatorily coupled across the th these three mm -hmm. stages of the control system, mm -hmm. but then are they are tightly, let's say they're competing with each other through okay. inhibition, Yes. Which is, but inhibition regulated through cortical-cortical connections. Right. Okay. So you don't see a role in this kind of, let's say, competition and action selection by for subcortical structures, such as basal ganglia? So you really see this play out as a pure cortical process? We don't know the role of uh, subcortical structures yet, but we know that if we inject tracers in three reach zones, for example, one in posterior parietal cortex, one in premotor cortex, and one in motor cortex, and we have a, 
a medical student working on this project just right now. The, the connections, interconnections, are to the same part. They're all overlapping completely in the basal ganglia. If you go to a reach and a defense area in the same region of cortex or, or in different regions, they'll be in different parts of the basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia has a chance of having information coming from all three areas at once to, and feeding back ultimately to all three areas. So what, that's, what the basal ganglia might be contributing, we don't know yet, but it's intriguing knowing that basal ganglia are essential for habit formation, mm -hmm. to think that this is a place where that kind of learning can alter the functioning of these cortical mm -hmm. circuits. So you, our understanding is at a very primitive level. Mm -hmm. right. you, you have to get how to, not only how do standard behaviors come about, but how do you vary these behaviors? How do you, do, how do you unite them? How do you get learning of mm -hmm. sequences of behavior coming about? Right. So and that, we're not there yet, but we want to go there eventually. Sure. I mean, the example you've described is sort of visually guided reach and grasp yeah. in primates. Right. And uh, so it's easy to imagine in the evolution of primates that uh, we move from being animals that essentially use their mouth as their main effector to being animals that would use their hands mm -hmm. as their main effector. And our eyes start to face forward and we, we do uh, stereo and we were able to then really precisely control movements of the, the arm and hand, which wasn't possible before. And perhaps this uh, posterior parietal cortex therefore evolved to fit this need of visually guidance of reach. But uh, would you say that it's more general than that, that it's involved in other aspects of motor control, or is it particularly for those kind of movements? When we go most nearly, we get movements combined movements of forelimbs and hindlimbs. We've only done this in anesthetized animals, and so we don't know what that means, but it looks like it's running or climbing. Okay. So, so but it could be involved in regulating There gait. could be something for initiating climbing or running, escape behaviors or whatever. I don't know. But it's promising to go in that direction and try to figure that out. Uh, if you looked in uh, non-primate animals that are maybe have good vision mm -hmm. and, and grasp to see if they have anything uh, similar to this development of the... the I don't think you would get in posterior parietal cortex right. because the, the strip of cortex is so small and, and actually you get a lot of visual inputs directly to premotor cortex and even motor cortex in rodents and tree shoes and a lot of other animals. They're, they're not adding this extra step in there. And that means you've lost the connection as well. You're, you, you're gaining a large expanse of posterior parietal cortex, and you're, you're not having these direct visual connections to motor and sensory areas. But now the, you could, so, so the, the, this, is, this is a pretty clean scheme, right? Because also you would say, look, at level of, of primary motor uh, cortex, you would have, let's say, uh, clusters that control different joints of the body. This is the model you have in mind, right? Yeah. And they, they are again grouped together in, in a, if you want, a, a zone that controls a, a, steer, a specific behavioral pattern. 
and they are linked together mm -hmm. with executive mm -hmm. and perceptual systems. And then you could argue well, then within that behavioral zone, you might find something like a population mm -hmm. response, but collectively they really control a whole behavioral pattern. This would be roughly the picture, right? But one challenge here is, of course, you, that you could argue if you now want to scale up towards, let's say, macaque performance or human performance, mm -hmm. one thing that, that characterizes us, if you want, is that we actually are less dominated by stereotype behavioral patterns. And in our case, we can play musical instruments. We can generate, let's say, and control arbitrary behavioral patterns. So, and also, with using the Gallagher, you could say, well, that's still a fairly primitive brain. And maybe what you see is more the, or the behavioral organization of a primitive brain as opposed to one of a more advanced brain. That is, mm -hmm. that, that you look at the control of stereotype behavioral patterns that are very much brainstem dependent, mm -hmm. but that in the end the organization of arbitrary behavioral patterns, as we can produce mm -hmm. them, would follow different principles. Would you, would you, how would you look upon that challenge? I, I would speculate, and we don't know much about human brains on this, or mm -hmm. we don't, sure. don't know very much about macaque brains yet, but we would speculate that exactly the expansions in the direction you're going. So we have a primitive system that is important for all these primates, New World monkeys, Old World monkeys, prosimian primates. We don't know how chimpanzees might be or humans might be, but there's a lot of reasons to suspect these, these uh, basic modules have been retained across all these animals. Mm -hmm. But they would also be built upon and especially, say, from, from grasping to being able to do grasping in all sorts of different ways. And, of course, uh, uh, most of what we do with grasping is not in conscious awareness. That you reach out and you do the appropriate uh, uh, position of all the fingers for whatever you're going to do. And it's been pointed out. I don't know if this has been studied in macaques to any extent, but in humans at least, you not only reach the best grasp for what, if you're just going to pull a twitch or something, but if you're going to do something next, like uh, turn it upside down, then you do a different grasp for turning upside down. So there's the potential for a lot more going on than what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. and, and how does that occur and where does that occur? We don't know. We don't know, but I suspect a lot of that is due to circuits and posterior parietal cortex, where instead of a small grasp area, you have a huge region involved for manipulation, grasping and manipulation, and maybe only part of that will get to give you a simple grasp, and other things all combine in different ways to add complexities to this. And then you think, you have to know what you're going to do more than one step in advance to, mm -hmm. to, to do a lot of this. And yet, so uh, the challenges are great in trying right. to figure this out. But there's out. something interesting about scaling this up. Yeah. If you scale up, because I think we're going to hit the bottleneck mm -hmm. now. Because you could argue, okay, if we now f scale up this goggle brain that you're investigating, then if the same principle would hold for a human brain, which is, let's say, much more diverse in its behavioral output, yes. almost arbitrary in what it can yeah. do, you would say, well, that would mean that instead of having, let's say, eight of these behavioral zones that you see in the Gallagher, like defensive, mm -hmm. uh, grasping, uh, 
stereotype behaviors you identified. Now I have, let's say, a large thousands of these three-staged controllers that define very specific behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. Would that be would that be the scaling up That's that you envision? One possibility. That's one possibility. Right. It might not be. That's the way it goes. Maybe. Uh, uh, what happens is individually variable according to learning experience and, and modifications in the, in the circuits that come from the learning experiences and may depend more on, on basal ganglia. It might depend more on different parts of the whole complex system. Uh, we, we don't know that, but if you start to think about other parts of the brain, the premotor cortex looks pretty simple in the Galagol and fairly enlarged and complex in a macaque monkey already. And, and then you think of the complexities. Where did, uh, where did uh, sp uh, speech come from, uh, the motor circuits for speech and so on? How did that get elaborated? Mm -hmm. we, we actually have no animal model that's partway there that we can, mm -hmm. could look at. You have to learn from, from humans how this happened and what right. the circuits are involved in. So big jumps may there may be big jumps. We're so far away from macaque monkeys to use them and say this is what we're just scaling this up for human brain. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm thinking that's probably not going to be the case, and so we're going to see a budding off of a grasp area will have functional subdivisions, and there'll be some that'll be standard mm -hmm. because and they, that means a lot of different grass behaviors will be there for every human child, and then there will be a lot of things that will be acquired, and acquired on the basis of experience, but the cortex will be there that can be modified, mm -hmm. or other parts of the brain, it doesn't have to be cortex, mm -hmm. it can be modified according to the learning experience, and you know, sort of making stone tools or whatever, you're not going to do what, that well the first day you're doing it, but there's some things that you have to do well on the first time, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, avoid a bullet to the head or, right. or uh, reaching out uh, a newborn human baby doesn't have to do very much to survive but uh, a lot of uh, primates are very good at grasping and holding on and reaching out mm -hmm. as, as newborn infants their, their visual system is functioning mm -hmm. they can do that uh, so uh, it a lot of experience is needed for some of these behaviors, and even if they're late developing or emerging in humans postnatally, I'm not sure that experience is an important thing. It's just the maturation of the system. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the old studies of, of children crawling upstairs, and you don't let them crawl upstairs, and it doesn't make any difference if they have the experience mm -hmm. or not. At a certain age, they do it. Mm -hmm. But now... So if we talk, if we take the scaling, the scaling up yeah. question, yeah. right? One bottleneck I would see is is how how I can how can I build my decision making system, my executive mm. functions of prefrontal? Mm. Because for instance, in the perceptual case, you could argue, well, this is convergent because I have I have a number of objects. Mm. Objects afford certain actions, mm -hmm. so you can already see that there's some sort of mapping there, which is not completely arbitrary, mm -hmm. right? And not objects. Most objects don't afford an infinite amount of, of mm -hmm. radically different actions. 
At the action side, it's highly convergent. You have to go to your skeletal muscle systems. It's very constrained. Mm -hmm. But at the level of your executive control, where you have to, if you want to tune now these actions to the rules that you find in your environment, that's almost open-ended, mm -hmm. right? Environment, also for the Galago, in theory, environments can change dramatically and they still have to adapt to that. So would, it, would there not be a, a bottleneck for this idea of very strict zones? Because that would also mean that the information you can now use of capturing the rules of your environment, the mm -hmm. operant rules mm -hmm. of your environment, mm -hmm. is actually very limited now. Because I, I'm tied to a certain set of connections in a very small zone to pick up an arbitrary set of rules, right? So, mm -hmm. so, 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 don't you think that there we need we need a bit more, more access to memory than, than your model would would predict? You you need access to memory, and where me memory comes in isn't so clear. But you can start to tease this apart by looking at uh, humans with brain various brain injuries, but it also can be done. Uh, more productively, I think, uh, with uh, primates where you can do selective cooling or inactivation of parts of, of circuits and see what happens. Mm -hmm. But I would, I, you know, just as an example, say, well, uh, one of the hard things for, unless uh, you tell your frontal cortex develops enough, is to inhibit a natural movement. So if something moves in the visual field and you look at it and you it, and then, but you can tell a person not to do that, don't look, and that would be a command that they understand the rule, they heard you, they, it's, it's, but a person with frontal lobe damage might have a hard time not looking. They, mm -hmm. and, and so that suggests that the interaction is in the frontal lobe, the things that are happening from the frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex, are important in that decision. Otherwise, it's more sensory driven. Right, but anatomically, you've not found any evidence for for this more, let's say, broader access mm. of memory. Mm. Anatomically, you find very sort of restricted yeah. zone-like organization. Yeah. These cortical yeah. projections. Yeah. Right? So we don't know where that happens, but we'd say, uh, in short term, if it's just a short term thing. Then working memory. For, Coleman Rikish would say prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. uh, Long-term memory, which certainly if you told me not to look, uh, I wouldn't have to keep that in, in a short-term memory because I'd remember that next day and mm -hmm. say, oh, I'm in this situation, I'm not supposed to look, I'll right. just look straight ahead. Mm -hmm. So how does that get, where does that access to that memory, how does that get retreat? Mm -hmm. And you know, then, then it gets harder. Okay, but this might imply that there's a fifth zone we should consider, yeah. because although there's a fourth zone dealing with value and effect, which, which, which must be still mm -hmm. identified, mm -hmm. but maybe there's a fifth zone that is more a broader cognitive memory system, that is if you want playing this piano mm -hmm. of, of these zones, these behavioral zones you have yeah. identified, yeah. would that be reasonable as interpretation? Yeah, no, yes, absolutely. So we have to think of um, both understanding what the rules of the game are, Mm -hmm. And we can pick that up verbally very easily, but the problem would be for a monkey to understand the rules. They have to mm -hmm. understand it by the training procedure that they now are getting an idea of how to solve the problem. Uh, but then you have to know all sorts of other things. You have to know if there's a reward if you do the right thing. What's the value of the reward? 
and the value of the reward would not be consistent if it's a food reward because you're hungry or less hungry. Uh, right. So if it's a punishment, what's the value of that? And and all that information has to be there. You have to. So it's it's a huge task to try to explain these complex behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I think we're at the very early stages of right. trying to do that and, mm -hmm. and looking at basic components. And maybe you're right. Maybe it, the basic components could fade into the woodwork mm -hmm. as you get a more complicated system. Uh, mm -hmm. But my analogy is one that I'll steal from John Ullman in this little book that he wrote on the evolution of cortex, because mm -hmm. I used to work with him. And he said he went to uh, the power station in Los Angeles, and they have some of the most ancient equipment in there and some of the most modern. And the reason that they have both is that they never can shut down the power system, because they have to keep it running all the time, so they add to it. And, mm -hmm. And brains are like that in evolution in the sense that it has to keep working all the time and you can start to modify it and tinker with it, but you can't shut it down and redesign mm -hmm. and say, I have a much better design. Right. That's maybe pushing it too far because maybe the new additions make some of the older components less necessary and they might fade or disappear. Mm -hmm. It's possible. But it might be a different system. But I... My bias is, is that we're going to see this uh, primitive system, mm -hmm. which isn't so primitive because it's new with primates of the posterior mm -hmm. primal organization. That primitive system preserved in all primates, uh, but greatly modified in the human brain especially. But also we think macaques will be modified considerably from prosimian primates. Mm -hmm. Right. So you mentioned the possibility of using neuropsychology or cooling to yeah. uh, tease out some of these mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, so do we have evidence from that already, maybe, of the impact, for instance, of stroke on posterior parietal yeah. cortex? And what does that show us? So, what, so when Randy Newton made small lesions on part of the hand cortex, he wasn't looking at specific modules or or domains. He was just doing, this is hand cortex, we're going to take some of this out. Uh, with a little experience in three or four weeks, you, you couldn't tell the animal had lost his cortex. So Leah Kruitzer has done this in posterior parietal cortex, making a small lesion of an area involved in grass behavior. And, and in three days, you can't tell. So the reason we want to look at cooling is, is that we don't, we realize that the brain has enough plasticity and is going to change the strengths of connections and modify actually where the connections are, even over short periods of time, that it's a moving target. You can't figure out what the machinery is doing if it's modifying itself while you're looking at it. So cooling will give us a chance to look, we're going to change the machinery for a short period of time, then we're going to get and restore its original organization, and hopefully, that there aren't permanent changes in the machinery uh, right. during that. By doing that, there might be you might not ever be able to go back. Uh, so we're both interested in the plasticity and the ability of the machinery to adjust and change, and 
because that's going to be important in the learning and experience component of everything we do. So I think we want to, but that's going to be a harder, harder task. You know, the robotic studies would suggest that there needs to be, um, for the control of reach and grasp, mm -hmm. some area that analyzes the visual affordance of an object mm -hmm. for grasp and decides then, okay, th these are the alternative grasps that I might do. And then that would go downstream towards the motor system, mm -hmm. which would perhaps plan the specific grasp. And when we write proposals to try to get funding, I'd say one of the criticisms we're getting is from motor people saying, you're not doing the right experiments. And one of the, for example, when an animal in your setting some part of the brain is reaching and grasping, why don't you put weights on the hand and see what happens then, and so on. So, but you know, we already know that the animal will compensate for that weight and still do the task. How does it do that? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question that is in our future, not, not the it's not the immediate thing to understand because we don't understand things that come before that. We think that's an advanced question, a part of the immediate adjustments of circuits so you can accomplish something. But already you can do a lot in the spinal cord as, uh, as in frogs or, or whatever uh, that Beatsy has revealed mm -hmm. that, that wherever the limb is and you, it'll come to a particular position. Th those circuits are really very elegant at that level mm -hmm. for doing something to a specific goal. But now with respect to the plasticity effect you mentioned earlier, are you with that saying that, that these ideas of Lashley from the 30s yeah. of, about mass action and equipotentiality actually hold? That mm -hmm. means function of the brain results from the collective activity of many of its, its neural units and single, in, single neurons can basically take on a plurality of functions dependent on the context they're in. Do I you see that confirmed by your... I think that's true, but... I wouldn't agree with uh, everything that Lashley would say. For example, he said that you can do everything with one sixtieth of primary visual cortex. You could, if, if you imagine doing everything by looking through a people, then I'd say yes, you have all the machinery for analyzing a small little bit of visual space, because you're doing all these different bits of space somewhat in parallel, not completely, because they're in our there are horizontal connections that are interacting and feedback that are interacting. The rat would lose that in its sixtieth. But it still could do a lot in that little people. And you would be fooled to think that the rat is fairly normal if you didn't pay attention to how it was using vision. Mm -hmm. right. and, 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 and that's where Lashley went wrong. Of course, mm -hmm. you take any part of the brain out, you're degrading the function of the machine. Mm -hmm. But the ability to compensate for loss is, is tremendous. That's, that's what so, would be so unexpected for people 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Although any physician that saw somebody with a, a, a lesion would say, of course they, you know, they get better. Mm -hmm. It's just that imagining how the brain could change to, make, to recover what Mm -hmm. People said, well, once you develop a brain, it's fixed. That was the view I was raised on. It's development, okay, things right. can change. But once it's developed, it's fixed. Now we have so much evidence that it's not fixed. It can... But now, 
what's so surprising about this result that has now been discussing, also we pay so much attention to it, is that after, let's say, what, 150 years or so of, of motor, motor system neurophysiology, um, why did it take us so long to, to stumble on to this idea about the organization of motor control in this sort of, let's say, multi-layered architecture? Why, why did no one stumble into that earlier? I think early on there was a lot of evidence that you could simulate widely in the brain and get behaviors. And then that was like was forgotten as soon as we said we have a motor cortex and this is where it's really happening and we can focus on that. But also the single unit, single neuron recordings became the focus. And if you look at where in a macaque monkey you can evoke a grasping behavior by electrical stimulation. It's only part of a much larger area where neurons are active, very active during grasping. Those neurons that are all contributing in some way, mm -hmm. but we don't know how they're contributing. So this correlation of being active during a behavior is a good start, but it doesn't tell you their role. Mm -hmm. in the behavior yet. And of course you could lose a lot of them and the behavior still would either be there or would recover. And it doesn't tell you how that happens. Right. So now one contradiction that, that, that I have, or that I have to resolve for myself, is that if I, if I look to, to your work, on the one hand you, you do make a point, also supported by a lot of anatomy, that actually we should not interpret sensory modalities as being really so specialized as single modalities. Right? There's a lot of, let's say, cross-modal responses that you find in, let's say, primary, in the primary sensory, um, some other sensory area you might find response that led to motor actions, or you might find, let's say, visual response, whatever. So it's much more, let's say, a mixed bag. They're specialization, but they're not strict boundaries. It depends on what sensory information is needed. Right. Yeah. Uh, and... <coughs> Uh, of course, you know, 60 years ago, Wilsey was saying that we shouldn't call something motor cortex. It's, it's motor sensory or sensory motor, and, and the second word is means it's the reduced part. What's the dominant part? You put motor or sensory, mm -hmm. but they're all sensory motor. Right. But now, in your interpretation of the functional organization, you seem to again segregate very specifically from perceptual, executive, and motor. So, so should we really put strict borders around that now? Mm -hmm. Or do we also face, let's say, a, a challenge that maybe, let's say, executive is not solely executive in, in, in that way, or perceptual neither? Now, I see what you're getting at. One of the, part of the problem is, is that you would say is, uh, say, because we have someone in my department working on, on frontal life field, and he would say that uh, frontal life field, if you ask an animal to move to a target, and the target has to be a, a red square against green ovals, or it could, shape, it can be color, it can be anything that you can change in the visual system. The animal will move and the neurons in, in 
frontal eye field will be activated by more by the red square than the green oval or whatever dimension you want. So you could claim now that those neurons are sensory neurons that are selective for whatever attribute you wanted to make up. But in another task, they can be selective for any other visual attribute. So I would say they're visual, but not in the same sense that we have a visual processing area that's trying to extract bits of information. That information has already been extracted, and now there has to be some mechanism of, of having frontal eye field know what the rules are, and only get excited when the cue is coming that means that you'll get water or juice or some reward if you move your eye to there. Then those neurons will be activated. So, so is that a sensory input or not? It's probably an executive input that also has the sensory information and so on. And when this, in, when the red color and the square is there, go for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but that's hard, I think, to start to specify exactly how that's accomplished in uh, a model. Mm -hmm. Right. So the theme of, of this week is about the evolution and development, the evo-devo yeah. of, of behavior. And um, I wonder what ideas you might have about how this relatively reorganized system emerges with early primates, and sort of what are the combination of different things which are giving rise to this and what are the developmental mechanisms that are perhaps allowing the brain mm -hmm. to reorganize so this important posterior parietal cortex area emerges that can uh, give you much more control over visually guided reaching of rats. So I think in, in early mammals, the, the, the behaviors that were species-specific and necessary are largely subcortical under control. That's somewhat limiting. Uh, in mammals without a motor or premotor cortex, which we would judge to be marsupials, uh, most of them or all of them, the, the somatosensory cortex is heavily involved in providing sensory information about uh, where touch is, where proprioceptive, and so on, to, to a largely subcortical motor system. Uh, so a lot of behaviors can be evoked by stimulating subcortical stations or avoidance, visual avoidance. A lot of this can be done by deep layers of the spirit colliculus, for example. We don't know how that's involved in this behavior that I'm talking about, but it's certainly part of the, the possibility. Uh, how this is done by extraparental system, for example, not so clear. But with the advent of a separate motor cortex and what I would call the fracture, fractured or modular organization of motor cortex, that seems to be when you have a primary motor cortex, it's it has these jumps. It's not completely somatotopic. It's jumbled. And the cerebellum, where you're dealing with adjusting, using sensory information to correct errors in, in motor behavior, is, is jumbled as well. Why, do, why is it fractured in this way? That you have different body parts next to one another. Probably for the same reason. You, you have to have different combinations locally, so you have to repeat the same inputs several times in different ways so that you can have a modular kind of organization. So we think 
this already happens in motor cortex. So one way of looking at motor cortex is to say motor cortex is just the general purpose motor region. And its organizing feature is somatotopy. It goes from foot down to tongue, tail to tongue. That's the crude organization. Within those big blocks, you'll see all kinds of mixtures. And this will be true of any motor cortex, rat, whatever. Mm -hmm. So already I think there's a sign that it's modularly organized in terms of certain specific behaviors. Once you set up that organization, that would match with the information that's coming from the cerebellum, then you, that means that premotor cortex should follow that suit, or posterior parietal cortex should follow that suit if it's going to interact with it in a meaningful manner. And, and so these are steps added on, motor cortex first. Posterior parietal is, is, is more on the perceptual side of Absolutely. the beginning of, of this, this motor hierarchy in a way. Mm -hmm. and, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say so much on the perceptual side because what if, what if the sensory information is used in, a, in an unconscious way? where you're not aware of how the sensory information is being used. Right. It would still be perceptual, no? It would be sensory, but perceptual implies an awareness. I mean, you are aware of the visual scene, but you might not be aware of how you control the motor behavior. Well, I'm not sure if we really have to <coughs> bring in uh, awareness for to talk about perception. Perception, some more water from someone? Um, Maybe perception essentially means that you that you rely on categories, mm -hmm. right? That you start to, that knowledge is imposed in defining what a visual scene or what a sensory scene uh, comprises of. So, so I'm not sure whether whether we have to. I mean, it's not. Uh, so I'll try to make the distinction and how I think about it, and, yeah. and see if we have some agreement. But I would say. That if an area of the brain is involved in perception, when you electrically stimulate it, you should have a perception. And if you electrically stimulate motor mm -hmm. cortex, you might not have any perception. Mm -hmm. You might, I move, but I don't know why. Okay. Yeah, I would not. I, I would. I would disentangle these two because I think a percept, as such, can be um, uh, a representation you use to classify mm -hmm. states. Mm -hmm. But these states don't you don't need to enter awareness. We don't need to couple this automatically to awareness. But of course, we can bicker on, on, on definitions, mm -hmm. right? But um, but to, to, to bring it to the to the finish line, so so here you are with, with this enormous experience in, in brain brain research and evolution of the brain. So how many more years do we need to really understand the brain? Hmm. I hope five more years <laughs> because I have five years of funding. <laughs> But I think it's, uh, you know, it's an endless task in the sense that uh, our understanding is very crude now, I, I feel, but much better than it was at the time I showed you the, the Thompson textbook pictures of, of the cortex. And now people will start labeling functions or areas all over the place and saying, well, this area is involved in eye movements. Well, that's pretty good. That, but why would you have an area that people call LIP, which we see in all these primates now that we can get the eye movements from posterior parietal cortex in the region that I think is LIP that you define in humans or 
from a kick. Why would you have an eye movement in there? Also another eye movement in the frontal lobe. And then uh, supplementary eye. Why all these steps? Unless each step has a different role. Mm -hmm. And that's the heart of what I'm thinking about. Is And so the role of posterior pilot cortex is sensory dominated. To make the best of what the sensory information is. And that's perception, it's perception, but I don't necessarily think that the person, the observer, has to be aware of the perceptual decisions or the sensory decisions. They could be or they might not be, I'm, I'm not sure. Right. But it, it really, if you were designing a robot, it wouldn't make any difference, right? Mm -hmm. what, what, what's the function of consciousness? That, that's to add the executive decisions to, to the whole thing. And, but a lot could be totally automated, where consciousness is not an important component. Right. I think, uh, I mean, the, uh, and a perhaps interesting analogy that we might consider in robotics is that, mm -hmm. you know, until maybe 10 years ago, we were really struggling with, with vision for robots mm -hmm. to do even elementary scene mm -hmm. analysis. And then suddenly, uh, you know, people did have stereo algorithms, but it was difficult to piece it all together. And then Microsoft bring out the Connect, and it delivers to you a, a 3D analysis of the scene, uh, which is really quite detailed. And suddenly, we can do all sorts of new things really quite easily mm -hmm. and quickly mm -hmm. that were very difficult before. So perhaps in in primate vision, we have something similar: is that the visual system reorganizes itself to give us good stereo, because I think in a lot of these other animals, it's really a defense system. Mm -hmm. It's not fusing. It's not giving you depth. It's certainly not, as you were saying in your talk, giving you uh, high detail. So once you have this n nice uh, de depth analysis of the visual world, the brain can maybe reorganize itself to make use of that in some way. And that would be interesting to try and understand whether that was one of the things that is giving rise to this new capacity in primates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and what's surprising to me, even though I've studied plasticity for a long time, is how quickly an, a new th feature can be useful. And then the best example is adding a, a third cone to a squirrel monkeys artificially. Everybody knows about that research where you add a new gene to, to, some, to cones in the retina so that you have a third pigment. And their color vision immediately changes. Mm -hmm. I, the whole system adjusts to something new would anybody ever have guessed that in advance? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, right. I, I, I'm stunned by that, but it shows us that the, at least the developmental plasticity is fantastic in, in adjusting to change. And so a little change anywhere can be built, will affect the brain widely. Right. Although I, I want to be careful with Tony's suggestion that that the primate brain might might have been based on uh, Microsoft uh, architecture, <laughs> and but so the other thing is so so now. What's the kind of prediction you would like to make today, about the work that you're pushing now? So you have five more years. You were telling us funding. What are we going to see at the end of these five years? What's the prediction that you're really testing there? Well, we hope to do several things. I want to demonstrate and that can be put into a model of how posterior parietal cortex 
seven or eight functional zones interact and what how and how they interact and do the same for motor cortex and premotor cortex if anything more than that comes out of it I'll be delighted and and the one way to do this is is that I want to know what are the inhibitory connections and what are the excitatory connections. How, how, what, the, we have a prediction, and the prediction is that there will be excitatory connections to excitatory neurons in a, in a very specific local pattern. And then the other ones will be excitatory to inhibitory neurons within posterior parietal cortex that will cause, we, that, that there will be mutual conflict between the areas and they'll be fighting on the basis of the inputs to, to win out. Mm -hmm. Those connections can be demonstrated now by selectively labeling uh, uh, connections to inhibitory neurons and seeing which, which neurons go to inhibitory neurons and which ones go to excitatory neurons. That's possible mm -hmm. through uh, a genetic manipulation. Right. Uh, we haven't done that. The things that have been done in that area are, are not very far along yet, but we can do it. We, we. Yes. if I had the right collaborators, we can do this. Right. Uh, and then, so, um, so, so how long have you been active in neuroscience now? How many years are we talking about here? Well, I started graduate school in late, I, I, I finished in early 60s, mm -hmm. undergraduate, and then I was in graduate school. And, and so I would say I was involved in it from, in the, from the 60s mm -hmm. and late 60s, pretty well involved in right. it. And so it's a really a long career, like, longer than, right. almost, than most people ever get to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm delighted to be still here doing these things, right. having this fun, because it's really fun. But now based on this experience, <laughs> in, in the study of the brain, what is the, the John Cass law that we should all follow? I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, it's like a norm that you would would like to sort of, if you want, impose upon all of us interested in the brain, a heuristic, a rule that we should adhere to in order to make progress, to uh, really gain understanding in the brain. Everybody gets it understanding in, in their own ways, and so I would hesitate to say this is the way. I don't know the way. I'm, I'm learning new ways all the, all of the time, and and... Uh, I would, after working on plasticity for a long time, I didn't intend to work on plasticity and developing adult brains, but there it was, and you mm -hmm. couldn't avoid it. So I guess all of us should be open to different ways of thinking about it, surprises that we mm -hmm. didn't anticipate, and then incorporating that into our thinking. And uh, I think... It's very hard to ever change your mind on something when you get committed emotionally to a line of thinking. But if we could do that more easily, it would be helpful. And uh, they, just, one example is I was on sabbatical in a way, and my graduate student was working on something that, that would provide really compelling evidence for a view I had about the visual system. And he said, the evidence is just the opposite. It argues that you were wrong about what you, how you thought the visual system. He thought he was first hesitant to tell me about this because I was on sabbatical. I wasn't seeing how things were happening along. And I thought, this is great. 
it's much better to announce the mistake ourselves than have somebody tell us we were wrong. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, right. but the evidence was so convincing that I flipped over right away. Mm -hmm. And now I have a person that's now working with Leah Krivitzer, and, and she's telling me, you were wrong in another way, and you have to incorporate <laughs> that in your thinking. And I teased her, and I said, no, that can't be right. She went away and away in her postdoc, still thinking I didn't disagree with her completely. But I'm going to send her a paper that I want her to be a co-author in, which I agree with her completely. Mm -hmm. It'll be a surprise to her. Right. <laughs> but, but maybe it's because I've had now a couple of years to think it over. Mm -hmm. But she didn't have a strong bias in going in. She just looked at the data and she came mm -hmm. to a different view. My other graduate student didn't have a strong bias. I had the strong biases. It's my view that had to be changed. Theirs was easy to change because they didn't have a strong one. So Jones Law will be keeping open mind. Keep the new investigators around you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. A lot of surprise. Yeah. That's fantastic. So they'll tell you where you're wrong. Exactly. Well, Jones, thank you very much for this conversation. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.